and thanks for hitting the snooze button. My name's Neil Head. Welcome to episode four. This is where the rubber meets the road, as they like to say. This is the episode of the snooze button where we took recorders into my appointment with my sleep doctor and recorded the entire conversation. We're going to play the whole thing back for you right now. In fact, here's how you know that this is a recording of a doctor's appointment. If you listen really closely, you will hear at various stages my wife trying to settle down our 14-month-old daughter because they were in the room to hear the results the same time I was. Uh, A huge thank you to everybody at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto, especially Dr. Mark Boulis, who is my sleep doctor now. Uh, But we're going to go through all those results together. You're going to hear what's going on with me, and we're going to get way into the weeds on this thing. I figure rather than try and edit and figure out which stuff might be useful for you, I'm just going to leave the whole conversation there unedited in the hopes that something in there triggers a commonality between what you're going through with your sleep stuff and what I'm going through with mine. So it's all in there. Forgive me if it gets overly technical, too into the minutia. But again, we just wanted it all there so that everybody would get a sense of exactly where we are on this map. There are some links in the show notes. One thing you want to check out is um, Mark is going to make reference to a website uh, that uh, Sunnybrook did this huge meta-analysis of all the sleep studies that have been done since, I think he says 2007. And what they did is they compiled all that data to try and come up with what normal results for a sleep lab would be. Uh, And you'll hear Mark and I get into extreme detail on that. But for example, I was able to punch in my age, my gender, whether it was the first or second of my nights in a sleep lab. And then it tells me, you know, what's normal for a variety of different measurements. But we'll get into all that with Mark here. Mark Boulis from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. Thank you for making the time for this today because I appreciate all the help that you have been. I, I, I mean, I need all the help I can get at this stage, but I very much appreciate the help that you've given. My pleasure. Thank you so much. How'd you sleep last night? Well, that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> I am a medical researcher and I was up really late last night, actually. I went to bed at three, but I was fortunate enough to be able to to be able to sleep in today. So I went to bed at three, but I actually woke up at around, I'm trying to think here, at around noon because uh, I was feeling really, really, really wiped from a very busy week of my, with my kids. So right. I got about nine hours of sleep last night, but I'm on call in a couple hours on emergency stroke call at my hospital. So I want to be wide awake and I'm feeling pretty good right now. So, okay. So when you say I went to bed at three and I got up at noon and then, and you, f- it looks like you feel pretty confident saying I got nine hours of sleep because where I would be in that conversation, I would say I spent nine hours in bed, but you're mm-hmm. saying, no, no, I got nine hours of sleep. Well, when I woke up in the morning, I felt very refreshed. So that's that. I mean, everyone has a different cycle, right? So my hours tend to be a little later than most people's hours. I tend to sleep out between one and three in the morning and then wake up around eight to nine hours later and i'm lucky because i can make that work with my line of work as a medical researcher and also as a clinician my clinics all start a little bit later than my colleagues and i just stay a little later because i'm i'm phase delayed but you neil i I think you're a lot earlier right because you can never live a lifestyle like me you're you're doing your maximum work during the hours that i'm I'm like, I'm, I'm in bed, right? Like yeah, you're, by, you're up at three. By so. the time you're waking up, I'm already done. I've clocked out for the day. <laughs> You've I'm clocked out. You've already done your job and you wake up at three in the morning, right? So I think everyone has a different, like I could never, uh, I can never do a job where I was required to be awake and conscious at three in the morning, you know, at, at three in the morning because that's just when I go to bed. Every one of us has a biological rhythm that clicks. And in fact, it's very interesting. Every one of our cells, every one of our cells, even our liver, heart, all these cells are entrained to an intrinsic circadian rhythm. So if you take the, uh, and, and, and uh, it's very, very interesting. 
but you, you know, every one of your cells is in tune to that. And that's why, and every one of us has a natural time where we're comfortable sleeping and waking up. So for you, you know, sleeping way earlier than I would ever sleep, uh, maybe real, you know, late, like early in the evening, basically, right? Like what, 7 or 8 p.m. and waking up at around 2 or 3 to go to work. That's, that fits your natural cycle for many decades now, whereas other, people's are, other people are substantially uh, uh, further delayed than you. And there are genes actually for both extremes, like for these what we call morning larks and night owls and so on. So it's genetic. Are, it's genetic. They're, this is partly genetic in nature. Other things are, of course, you know, environmental too, of course, in part, right? But there is a very strong genetic basis for the extremes. So I'm going to come back around to the specifics of, of my stuff later, but I, I just, am, am I as messed up as I think I am? Well, that's, that's a pretty hard question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So we'll wait, we'll wait to get the answer in a little bit. Um, as we're recording this, I have no idea what the results of my sleep study were. You're going to hear them at exactly the same time I do. So we'll get there in a little bit. I'm going to try to keep my, my curiosity at bay. Why? And, and we kind of had this conversation with Dr. Adrian Owen as well in the second episode. Um, where one of the things he was saying is he wishes more people would go and get sleep studies because there's so much to learn. Tell me what your take on that is. Absolutely. I think Dr. Owen's right on. I mean, so many of us have underlying sleep problems that if they were uncovered and treated really could improve our health. And uh, there are some things that could be so easily modified, but other things that need medical interventions. And, um, and so that's why I agree with them. You know, I agree that particularly if you have concerns with your sleep, you should really get them checked out as soon as possible. More and more science is showing that poor sleep is linked up with pretty serious diseases like heart attack, stroke, dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, even car accidents, a lot of social consequences and medical consequences to, uh, you know, from sleep. Well, I took. I, I'm. I'm assuming that there's a little bit more heat to come my way still because uh, Dr. Owen and I went down this tributary where where I kind of got obsessed about the whole car accidents thing because he pointed out and and I'd love your take on this as well is that you know when people think of cognitive impairment they think of things like dementia, Alzheimer's, and all those things. But he points out it's it's as small as the hundreds and hundreds of little decisions that you make every day from whether it's you're in line at Starbucks to uh, is now a good time to make a lane change on the highway. And and those are the things that when you start talking about the effects that a, a chronic lack of sleep can have on you, those are the things that are probably of even bigger concern than Alzheimer's because it's happening to thousands, millions of people every day. Absolutely. Great, great points there. Eh? You know, I'll give just a couple examples here, but for example, sleep apnea has been linked up. It ha sleep apnea, if untreated, independently links to a greater risk of future cognitive impairment and dementia. So that means like basically if you got sleep apnea, that's a big risk factor for, for developing, God forbid, something like dementia, Alzheimer's. We see also in the media so frequently every couple of weeks maybe even like major accidents like train accidents the media is reporting on all the time um I, i'm sure many of the car accidents we see out there on our uh, on our local media here are often attributable to driver error from fatigue and so these were things that could have been treated you know and, and most of these people are not just sleepy for one day this is probably years of chronic fatigue taking a toll on the brain 
And as you mentioned there, Neil, you know, poor decisions. But, you know, one poor decision usually doesn't get you in trouble. But when you make multiple poor decisions over the years, you're eventually going to get in trouble. And sometimes it's big trouble. Now, and again, we're going to hold off on, on my stuff in particular until, until we get a little bit further along here. Um, but it's, it's that idea of cognitive decline, dementia, all those things that sort of caught my attention in the first place, you know, because there has been so much science related to, uh, and, and when I found out that you had a great deal of work uh, in common with the research that's been done into this, it immediately caught my attention because people have known for a long time that there are different stages to your sleep and that they all perform different functions. So I'm just going to say two words and those will be uh, the translation for you will be on your market set go. So because I know this is one of the subjects that is completely in your wheelhouse and you're nodding at me because you already know what the two words are. Talk to me about the glymphatic system. All right. Well, we, you know, that's yeah one of my favorites there, Neil. Thanks. So there's some thinking that as you sleep, your brain is clearing out the toxins, these really harmful toxins that are that build up, you know, d night by night, day by day, you know, year by year. And over time, these harmful brain toxins are thought to cause things like stroke, dementia, cognitive impairment, and maybe even other diseases that we're still, not, you know, we're still studying. But the cool thing is that during sleep, and particularly during slow wave sleep, which is the third stage of sleep, it's thought that the, these, these bad brain toxins are actually getting cleared out. And so there were mice models uh, and you know, animal models that have demonstrated actually the clearance of these toxins. And, uh, but you know, in our work and in other people's work, we've actually demonstrated through different means that this is actually likely also occurring in humans as well. You say that third stage of sleep. So f for those of us, for, for the layperson who only knows them by, you know, the popular, t are we talking about REM sleep? It's actually, so there's going to be, um, there's three stages. Of, there's wake, you know, when you're awake, uh, stages one, two, and three, and then REM sleep would be considered like a fourth stage. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you've got stage one is sort of like, you know, uh, when you're just early in your sleep, that's about approximately about you know, about five to maybe 10% of the night. Uh, stage two is the bulk of the night, about half the night. And then stage three is about, again, 20, 25% of the night. And then the remainder of the night, which is about, again, about a quarter or so, mm -hmm. maybe less, maybe about 20% to about a quarter of the night is, um, is REM sleep. And, and, so, and so stage three sleep is that stage where it's thought that these toxins are being cleared and it might be occurring in other stages as well but it's probably where most of the toxins are being cleared and so what else happens in that third stage because i mean we all know that rem sleep is the that's the phase of your sleep where you're dreaming right um what else do we know the third stage for is that is that deep sleep is that a lighter sleep where where are we there on the right. curve kind Great of thing? question that's a pretty deep sleep so if you wake someone up in uh in stage three sleep they're really groggy in fact, a lot of interesting stuff occurs during stage three sleep, including people who sleepwalk, sleep talk, and other nighttime behaviors can occur in stage three sleep. Uh, and this, you know, if you've ever if you've ever woken up a sleepwalker, you'll notice that they're super groggy and you know really disoriented and so on. But that's the um, 
but that would be the stage where it's occurring out of. Is that the reason why they say, because I remember the story for the longest time was don't wake up a sleepwalker, don't wake, but it's basically only because you have no idea how groggy they're going to be and they might you walk into a flight of stairs that they're not expecting to be right. there. Right, exactly. The best way to deal with a sleepwalker is to be sort of gentle, gently coax them back into where they were supposed to be. And then also we tell families who have sleepwalkers uh, just to make sure that the environment is safe. So locked doors, something that someone who's really groggy would have a hard time opening up gates uh, where, you know, where, where it would be safe and so on. Other safety precautions, avoiding sharp edges, tables, and so on in the vicinity of the sleepwalk. So I've got to ask you, how long for you has sleep been a career focus? Yep. So I, um, I've always been interested in sleep. In the medical profession, you quickly realize that you don't get much of it. <laughs> is that what inspires a lot of people to become <laughs> sleep doctors, is that they never got any during their residency and things like that? <laughs> Probably. I was really interested in sleep because I realized it had such important implications on every other neurological disease we were, we were dealing with. So I've been a sleep specialist um, since 2011. I did some specialty training between 2011 and 2013, then came on staff at Sunnybrook. And I've been uh, enjoying every minute of it since that time. I loved the line in the episode with uh, Adrian Owen from Western University where he said, they've been doing sleep studies since before I was born. And, and I'm wondering if your expertise in this would suggest that when they first created the concept of the sleep study, if somebody sat down in a conference room with a bunch of other doctors and said, let's take people and put them in the least familiar environment possible, strap a bunch of stuff to their head, and then tell them to go to sleep as if it's just a normal night. Is that maybe how that meeting went? Because when people talk about what a sleep study looks like, Everybody says, how do they expect you to fall asleep in that environment? What do you say to that? <laughs> it's tough, right? You know, when you've, you know, you recently underwent your sleep study, we'll be talking about that soon. And uh, it, 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 you're right, it's not a natural environment in any way. Um, yet it provides us so much information that's so viable. So it's almost, almost the best way of getting it, as it were. Um, the other thing is there is a move towards home-based testing. So that's actually been the focus of a lot of my research work, where we can do a lot of home-based tests um, that can measure things like sleep apnea, movement in your sleep, threctigraphy, which is like these little wristwatch-like devices. And also we can even measure leg movements in sleep by putting those little, uh, we can put like little anklets, like little movement sensors on your ankles, and they would measure, uh, they would measure how frequent your legs are kicking. Now I wanna just jump in with one thing. Here and that is that um, recently, uh, my uh, we published out of Sunnybrook a paper in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine, which was a comprehensive meta-analysis of normal in laboratory sleep study results. So, so basically, what we did is we took every single control group published in the literature since 2007, mm -hmm. which was a lot of people several thousand people and merged all the results together so that we were able to derive through statistical means normal results for being in a sleep lab so so we so this is again this is the results of a of healthy adults being tested in a, in a sleep laboratory and if people are interested in the results they're available on psgnorms.com so you can actually just type in your age and your gender 
and uh, you'll get your uh, you'll get your results uh, right away. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes for this as well. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what what the meta analysis did is it took all of that data and and it basically is the answer to the question how do they expect you to sleep in that environment well you know what statistically we've accounted for that and here's what that study looked like we got it right on exactly and that we'll have that link active very soon we're, we're actually just working actually literally i was working over the weekend on this uh on this website tirelessly it's, yeah it's awesome and it's great so you can put in your age your gender and yeah the, maybe all the terms may not be familiar to everyone there there but you'll get a sense for how long would you expect to sleep in the laboratory? <clears throat> How many times should you stop breathing? And things like that. And there's explanations all over. So it'd be uh, great. So when I did my sleep study, um, I had, you mentioned the ankle bracelets, which are totally different from the ankle bracelets I wear in my everyday life. And kidding and um also a, a wrist version as well now let's be clear in case anyone's jumping to contusions as i like to say um this is not a this is not a fitbit that's right exactly these are uh so there are um not to cast dispersions on the fine people that fitbit or apple watch or any of that but these are far more sophisticated versions of that tech right so these are made by other companies that are more medical they make more medical based products and they're very accurate movement sensors. So uh, that's what actigraphy is. So actigraphy can be worn on a wrist. It looks a little bit like a Fitbit. It's a really, you know, it's basically a really complicated or really advanced, it's a, like a really advanced movement sensor. But they have algorithms to tell you when did the person fall asleep, when were they kind of, uh, uh, you know, dozing off, when were they active during the day, and so on. So those could be worn at the wrist, and they can give you a good sense for your day, you know, your, your, your uh, sleep-wake activity during the day. But we've also, in, in research that my group has done as well over the last few years, and this is um, it's something we can make very available, it's, um, is that we've validated uh, the same movement sensors, these same sort of actographs as they were, but you can wear them on the ankles to detect leg movements. So one of the things that led me to come here in the first place while we're talking about wearables is that my Fitbit um, yeah. is returning data that says, and this is backed up with anecdotal evidence from Mrs. Headley, uh, who says that the first two or three hours every night I spend kicking and, in fact, just the other night, she woke me up in the middle of the night to let me know that in my sleep I had kicked her. What was unusual about the incident a couple of weeks or a couple of nights ago is that I remember the exact moment that I kicked her because I was having a dream where I was telling someone who was coming after me in a dream that if if they tried to lay a hand on me, I was going to kick them. And they came at me and apparently, I guess in the dream, I kicked them. But in bed, I ended up kicking my wife. Um, yeah, she was none too pleased about that moment. It's not one of the shining moments of our marriage. Um, but I got the little poke in the ribs that I get normally when I'm snoring and going, you, you just kicked me in the leg. What are you doing right now? So is, I mean, I have from the Fitbit and from my wife, these stories about how much I'm flailing about. I guess this leads me to the question of, are people getting usable data 
from the wearables that are out there for the mass market right now? Is that stuff that we're, whether it's an Apple Watch, whether it's a Fitbit, whether it's that uh, sleep app that you can get when you lie your phone down beside your pillow, is that data usable? Is that in any way related to the stuff that we're going to find out in a sleep lab? Or is that... Is, you know, is that the difference between having rabbit ears on your TV versus uh, versus a great cable package? Great, great point. You know, so uh, some work has actually looked at this, but not much. One of the problems we have with these commercial entities like the Fitbit and the um, you know others like Apple, particularly, is that a lot of their validation data is not made public. So we don't know how accurate are these devices and now, the algorithms and all that right and all they, the algorithms they're not going to publish them publicly right because you know the last thing apple wants is you replicating their work right or else they lose a lot of their um, you know that's that's a big um financial issue but that aside there has been some work that has shown over the years these commercial devices have gotten better over time uh in terms of detecting sleep now i would still go with the gold standard here you know, to make diagnoses and so on and so forth, right? Uh, like these, you know, these much better validated, obviously, of course, sleep studies, the gold standard, which means that it's the, you know, that's that's our final conclusion for what is really going on in your sleep. Likewise, the actigraphy has been studied by scientists for many years. Again, those like wristband-like devices, they've been studied for many years. That's going to be the go-to more than a Fitbit. However, these other things, again, over time have really been improving. And if they are flagging some sort of abnormality. I think it's when you you take the opportunity to seek further help if you're getting abnormalities, you know, on those devices. Now, if you're still having poor quality sleep, but everything looks good on your Fitbit or on your Apple Watch, I still think it's a good idea to get checked out too, because maybe they might be missing something. It's, it's interesting because the way you described that triggered something for me. Um, I, I had a friend who was in the weight loss business, and he used to say, you know, when it comes to the different people were always talking about body mass index. Uh, you know, what's your BMI? Because your BMI is an indicator of your overall health. And he would like to hold up the idea that, you know, when they were each at the peak of their careers, Kevin James, the comedian that was in King of Queens, and Arnold Schwarzenegger had roughly the same BMI. So it's it, he said the only accurate, 100% accurate estimate of your body fat is a process they call an autopsy. And he doesn't recommend it highly as something that you should just go and get done this weekend. He said, once you recognize that everything short of an autopsy is just a guess, then that will help inform how accurate you want these processes to get. And it's the same thing with sleep quality, right? Absolutely, absolutely great, great example. Just we don't have to get an autopsy to figure out how well we're sleeping. Although, if you're getting an autopsy, the chances you're getting great sleep at that point, pretty good. Probably the best sleep. <laughs> All right, so let's just let's just get to this. Let's do the unveil here. I came in for my sleep study, and and with the caveat that I think I um, I think I was awakened to go to work at about three or three fifteen in the morning, as I recall. How did I do? What's the, what do you what do we see? You did pretty good. So I'll show you the results over here. Uh, you were in bed for about, well, you were in bed for five hours and 17 minutes, and you actually slept for four hours and 27 minutes. So what we do is we get something called the sleep efficiency, which is the time you're asleep, which is really the ratio of the time you were asleep versus the time you were in bed. And yours was 85%. So that's, that's pretty good. Really? So you actually slept for 85% of the night. A lot of people will say, I was in the sleep lab, and I don't think I slept at all. 
but the tr- but usually there is some some degree of sleep that okay so before you go any farther let me throw this in and and don't, i apologize in advance if i if i stop you periodically during the recap of this so my my sense of it that night was that i got i i maybe got an hour to an hour and a half that's what i felt like personally there is this uh phenomenon of sleep state misperception so the word is that you could be in bed and think you're not sleeping, whereas you actually really are sleeping. And that's a common reason why people report fewer hours of sleep compared to what they objectively get. So you know what you feel you got is often less than what you really got. So the good news is, yay, I slept twice as much as on the average night. But my average night now, it turns out, is four and a half hours, which is still crap in terms of cognition and how much sleep we actually need and all those kinds of things, right? Like I shouldn't be looking and going, yay, I'm getting four hours. I'm done with this whole project. Well, we woke you up a little earlier here, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, because I think your lights on time is three in the morning here. And that which is normal just- for me. This is normal for you. Okay. That's because that's when I, you know, five, five days a week, that's when I wake up to go to work. Right. Wow. So, uh, so yeah, so four and a half hours of sleep. We usually recommend people to get at least six hours of sleep, but sometimes people need more. And the American Academy of Sleep Medicine actually recommends about eight hours of sleep for most adults, you know? So that's usually where we're sitting at here. So it's tough, right? Because you've got a, you're doing great in your job and you've got the successful career going and everything. Can you write that part down for me? Great career, <laughs> doing great job. <laughs> sure. What's the number for your boss? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So what else am I looking at? So I slept for four and a half hours. What else do you, do you see? We have the distribution of your, of your sleep stages here. So, so you had... Um, so your N1 sleep, which is your first stage of sleep, was about 15%. Mm-hmm. That's a snudge higher than we would, um, than we would um, you know, than, 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 than that would be normal. But that's probably because, you're, again, you're in this artificial environment in the lab. Mm-hmm. Then your slow wave sleep, which is, remember that stage of sleep we were talking about, clears of the toxin, yours is pretty low. Yours is at a 1%. Usually it's closer to about 20% or so. Okay, so correct me if I overstate this, but the stage of the sleep that is going to help me in staving off dementia, Alzheimer's, all these sorts of things, I'm getting one twentieth of the amount of sleep that I should if my goal is to hold that stuff off. Right. Now, some of it is that... <laughs> Man, okay. <laughs> I know, it's tough, eh? It's tough. Wow. But you know what? We we're going to talk about a few other things that may actually help improve this, right? Because okay. Because there are... There are reasons why you're not going all the way into these deeper stages of sleep. So, um, and there's other stuff in the sleep study that we'll discuss here that can help you out with that. Okay. Part of it, again, is it might be the first night coming to a sleep lab. You're, you're at a little bit, you know, you're, you're not sleeping well. You're planning to go to work. Right. It's an N of one. one. It's an N of one, right? And if we repeated this again, you might actually have more stage N3 sleep. We found that in our previous research that certainly coming to the lab the second night you sleep better the second night compared to the first night mm-hmm. um then the other stage of sleep was that uh rem sleep which is you know the traditional dreaming sleep now you can sleep in rem sleep and also out of rem sleep but traditionally we think of most dreaming occurring during rem sleep and that was at 15 percent. so we usually anticipate about 20 25 of the night to be there so yours is just a little snudge less now it took you a little longer to get into rem sleep it usually takes people about 90 minutes. It took you about 123 minutes. So that's not that much longer. It's only about a half an hour longer. 
But again, it may be all in keeping with you know being in a lab for the first time um, and having some disrupted sleep. And we'll talk about that in the next couple of minutes. Okay. All right. So, uh, so, so where am I spending the bulk of my time? Uh, at what stage am I in for the bulk of the sleep? Because we've covered off 1% and a couple of 15s. So it sounds like most of my time is spent where then? Yeah. So about 70% of your night is spent in stage two sleep. So that is, that's, that's again, more of a lighter stage of sleep. Most people spend most of the night in stage two sleep. And with normal sleep, you spend about half the night in stage two. About uh. half the night in stage two. Uh, you're spending a little bit more. And so the other stages are not, you know, because you're not going to the other stages quite as much, okay. particularly uh, stage three. Okay, so what else am I staring at here? Yeah, so the next things that we look at here are the number of times you stop breathing in your sleep, the number of times you kick your legs in your sleep. Okay. So uh, you stop breathing in your sleep. We have this number here called the apnea hypopnea index. And that's the number of times you stop breathing. And that's 0.9 per hour. So that's actually normal. So, so does that mean I don't have sleep apnea? Well, there's another number. Oh, there's also, here it comes. Uh, here See it the comes way he in. does this? Okay. All right. <laughs> there's, a, there's also the respiratory disturbance index of 15.7, which is, which, is, uh, which is, so it's basically, it's a little bit complicated, but you take the metric from the AHI, the apnea hypopnea index, right. and then you add something called hypopneas with arousal. And I'll explain what that means in one second. So that means the number of times your breathing reduces, but then those reductions in breathing are associated with an arousal. And an arousal in the medical world, in this sense, is basically something that has woken up your brain or has at least changed your brainwave activity. And so if we're if the person beside us is snoring, uh, I'm just going to try and color this as an example and tell me if I'm wrong. Um, if you're if you sleep beside a snorer, the arousal stage that you're talking about is probably that thing where the snorer is going. It could very well be that. That would even be reflected in an apnea. So maybe we should take a step back and talk about what do these different terms mean. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. So an apnea is a complete reduction in breathing. And you, most of the time it's defined as a complete reduction in breathing for 10 seconds. And that's probably where you're going sort of okay. thing, right? Okay. That's where you actually see like, the person choking and everything. Then there are obstructive and central apneas. Obstructive apneas are where someone's more like choking or they're obstructing. Central apneas are actually where the brain is, is actually telling the body or telling the body to stop breathing, okay? And that will often occur in the case of people who have certain brain damage, like stuff like strokes, mm -hmm. even sometimes in heart failure for reasons that are fairly complicated, the brain will actually tell the body to stop breathing, okay? So you actually have very few of those uh, events you only have one obstructive apnea for the whole night, only one central apnea for the whole night. That's pretty normal. That's pretty normal. Wow. Then you have two hypopneas with desaturation. I'll explain what that means. So hypopneas are when you've got a reduction in breathing. Some hypopneas are associated with a drop in your oxygen level at night. That's what we mean by hypopnea with desaturation. It means that there's a hypopnea with a drop in oxygen level. 
And then the one that we sort of talked about first was the hypopnea with arousal. That's again, that's the reduction of breathing that's associated with or linked up with a change in your brainwave activity, usually some sort of awakening in your sleep or at least some sort of disruption right. in your normal sleep. So for you, you don't have, um, you know, you basically you don't have that much in the way of obstructive central events or hypopneas with desaturation, which means that your body actually maintains a very good oxygenation throughout the night. And in fact, we do see that because your oxygen levels only go down to 92%. That's, and that's normal. So no sleep apnea then? No, no sleep apnea in that sense. But you do have these things called, again, these hypopneas with arousal that is causing this other number here, this respiratory disturbance index to be a little bit high. So I'll tell you what I think that's coming from. So you do have some pauses in breathing that are waking you up intermittently throughout the night. And this is 15.7 right. times per hour. And I think that's probably linked up with your leg movements. Here it comes. Okay. All this right. is what Mrs. Headley and also, uh, you're, you see, this is something that your Fitbit won't pick up, right? Mm -hmm. So because your Fitbit's not measuring, um, not measuring you know, leg movements. Right. But what, what, uh, what you told me about Mrs. Headley uh, commenting that you're kicking your legs in your sleep, well, we, we do find that you have 81.8 periodic limb movements per hour. 81 an hour. Right. So every roughly every 45 seconds or so, I kick or move it. my you legs. You seem to kick your legs in a periodic fashion. There's just, you know, basically it's a rhythmic movement of your legs that's occurring again, 81 81, you know, almost like 80, basically 82 times per hour. And that's right. So you're doing that a lot, like more than every minute. Wow. Okay. And that sort of fits up perfectly well with with the story, you know, that, that you're kicking in your sleep and, uh, and so on. Okay. So, okay. I, 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 okay. I, so everybody's learning this at the same time I am. So forgive me while I take a second to let all this sink in. So... The other thing Mrs. Headley reports is that sleeping next to me at night is like sleeping next to a chainsaw because of the snoring. But it sounds like the snoring is not necessarily related to sleep apnea that, for example, I would need to get treated with a CPAP machine. That's right. So with your, um, so there's, not all snoring is apneic. Now, I want to just backtrack a little bit here, Neil, because this RDI number of 15.7 would put you in the, well, it's what we would call sleep disordered breathing mm -hmm. or a phenomenon called upper airway resistance. I'm sorry to be throwing all these sort of weird terms at you for the first time here, but this no, is good. But this is, this is, this is really important because you don't really have much, as you said, you only have like basically two apneas, one obstructive, one central. No one's, that's not abnormal, but what, what would be more of something that we could certainly address would be this RDI number of 15.7 and that's, again, those are the arousals, sorry, those are the hypopneas with arousal. Those often respond to CPAP, okay? Okay. So your snoring, as it were, may not be much in the way of sleep apnea, but you're still getting these hypopneas with arousal, which may very well be successfully treated with CPAP, right? Okay. Because these mild reductions in breathing they are still waking you up, right? So they have, while they're not dropping your oxygen level, they're not obstructing you, they are still waking you up, which is fragmenting your sleep. These can be actually treated by using CPAP, 
CPAP is a mask that you can wear over your nose, over your mouth, and it blows air back. Continuous positive airway pressure, right? You got it right okay. on. Okay. Perfect. You stole the words out of my mouth. <laughs> it's the Darth Vader mask, as I like to think of. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've gotten smaller over time. You know, when they first, you know, when I first started practicing a number of years ago, they were these huge contraptions. They've really gotten smaller over time. And these little small ones that just cover the nose now do a great job. Huh. And you can get them from a lot of different CPAP dis- distributors. But hey, the bottom line though is that, you know, again, you're. By by using CPAP, you might be able to, you're going to be able to keep your airway open to avoid these arousals, and these arousals again, these brainwave changes that might be waking you up throughout the night, maybe very much disrupting your sleep. The other thing that's super important is that you're kicking your legs in your sleep eighty about eighty two times per hour, right? So right about almost every like as you said every forty five seconds. And and is that and and forgive me if this isn't on on the page that we're referring to. Is that all night? Is that consistently? That's the whole night. I'll show you this the one. whole night. So is there? So we talk about CPAP for one potentially. Um, I'm assuming there's other options other than CPAP as well, right? Yeah. So sometimes people will use also mandibular advancement devices. So CPAP works the best, but there are also these things called mandibular advancement devices. And in English, what that means is that... Is that the thing that pushes your bottom jaw forward? You got it right on. Exactly. They're set up by experienced dentists. We have a whole bunch that we, we we're comfortable referring them. You know, we refer our patients to, but experienced dentists who are experts also in sleep. And they, your bottom jaw, as you, as you will be aware, is, is loose, right? It, it's movable. It, your top jaw is stuck to your skull, but your bottom jaw is movable, and it can be advanced ever so slightly... And it moves your tongue forward, and there, and, and, and in so doing, it actually helps prevent stoppage of breathing during your sleep. Try this, if, and I've tried this once when somebody explained to me how these things work. Um, and you can try this wherever you are right now. Take your lower jaw and push it forward so that your bottom teeth are in front of your top teeth. And then while you do that, try to make a snoring sound, and you can't. Yeah, you can't make a snoring sound if if you've got your lower jaw that stuck really way out. Yeah, so I guess yeah. that's where <laughs> that comes from. Which, uh, I mean, that seems really easy, and and so that's sort of the the silver medal version. So there's the gold standard. There's and and is there anything else in that list of what do you do about this? Yeah, in patients who are overweight, we'd also tell them to lose weight. In your situation, that's not the case. You 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 have a bo- normal body mass. Index. Can you write that down on the same piece of paper you said about the great job and the successful career? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I need evidence, man. I need evidence. Um, okay, so it sounds like my bigger problem is the leg thing. Right. So often what we'll do is we'll see how people do with CPAP. So a lot of the times just using CPAP or addressing the breathing problem will address the leg problem. In your case, though, you've got 82 per hour. So... I think you're going to need a little bit more than just the CPAP. So again, I want to be clear, treating with CPAP or the dental appliance can help reduce the number of leg movements Mm -hmm. you have through that relationship that the hypopnea with arousal may be in part triggering some of the leg movements. Do I need to be swaddled, Mark? Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) Well, there's other things you can do. (laughs) (laughs) So some things that we could do here are... um, you know, there are some medications that could trigger people to kick their legs in their sleep, but you're not using any medications. No. So that's, that, that, you know, that's not something that we could address. Uh, sometimes people will have warm baths, particularly if you gain this restless feeling in your legs, which you described um, a number of weeks ago when we, when, uh, when we, when we met up in clinic. 
Um, so a warm bath, massage, stretching often will help um, with, um, you know, with, uh, with, with relieving some of the movements. But the leg, sorry, with removing, sorry, with relieving some of the leg sensations, like these uncomfortable leg sensations. And I suspect on the basis of what you're telling me here that the uncomfortable leg sensations, are they keeping up at night? Yeah, I would say they do, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's part of the reason why it takes you. Now, you fell asleep in this sleep study in five minutes, but at home, you're you're telling me that it takes a lot longer to fall asleep. It takes takes me what feels like forever to get comfortable enough to fall asleep. Right, and that's exactly it. So, Neil, what you actually have is restless leg syndrome. Um, These uncomfortable feelings, and we'll just talk about that, like how do we diagnose someone with restless leg syndrome, but these uncomfortable feelings occurring at night it's basically like an urge to move your legs yeah and and so these are things that like we talked about before and again my apologies to the fitbit people i mean i've, I've bought every model of fitbit that's come out since you guys started so it's not like i'm going to walk away from the brand but that's not something that your fitbit's going to tell you unless you're one of those people and i've read about these people that do this instead of wearing their fitbit on their wrist there are people that wear them on their lower calf and they swear by putting it there because originally people say it's it gives me a more accurate count of my steps. Right. But right. I guess if that's where you're going to wear your Fitbit, it would also then track your leg movements better. Mm-hmm. That's right. Now, I don't, I'm not sure about, again, I don't know enough about the Fitbit to comment uh, as to whether it would work accurately on your ankles. But, um, but for certain, like our, our research group here in conjunction with some of our colleagues at Ryerson University, we actually uh, um, validated actigraphy worn at the ankles for the detection of these leg movements called periodic leg movements. Um, and that's probably the most accurate way of doing it now. Our algorithm is freely available if anybody's interested. I can is, do you, do you foresee a time that's not, you know, Star Trek years from now where a wearable that's mass available, you can go and pick it up at Best Buy or something like that, will be able to actually spit out reliable, not quite necessarily clinically viable sleep data, but will be able to give us a really solid estimate of what our sleep is? Yeah, I think we're getting closer and closer day by day and year by year that these commercial devices are getting a lot closer. They're not there right as of yet even the latest validation studies of even some of the apple based products are showing that they're they're not um they're not again done independent of apple sure are are not um and that's not any knock against apple for sure but i'm just saying that these commercial devices are getting better over time will continue to get better i just want to go back here before i lose my train of thought about the uh periodic limb movements because yours can also be treated with medications and there are different medications that can actually uh, help settle down the leg movement so they are they're often quite effective for both you know relaxing the leg movements at night for uh, you know addressing these restless legs feelings at night as well as getting rid of the actual limb movements at night so you're not kicking and affecting that partner like mrs headley here's my fear and yeah. and you can help me address this um one of the reasons that I have stayed away from, for example, sleeping pills, even over the counter or prescription, wh- whichever version, yeah. is that I need to, and, and people who heard episode one of the snooze button heard me describe this, when the alarm goes off, I need to be on. 
I'm right, on. Right. You know what I mean? And I don't get to, uh, in my line of work, and it's the same line of work that a number of other people, people who drive for a living, people who do all kinds of things, if you need to be on right out of the gate, we don't have that ramp up time where, oh, I get to work and I get to wait for the coffee to kick in, yada, yada. I got to be raring to go. So that's why I've been nervous about taking sleep medication in the past is because there's that hangover haze kind of effect with some. If I was to look at a medication that would address the restless leg stuff, is that a concern I need to have or is it completely in the clear yeah so the medication one of the classes of the medication would use would be a dopamine agonist it can be it can contribute towards sleepiness so i would suggest that you know the first time you, we'd start at a very low dose would be unlikely to cause you know significant you know sleepiness for the next day that would impact work but i will often tell people like like particularly like yourself who work in the media and other jobs where being awake is important kind of like most things um you know Try the pill maybe on a weekend or a day where you're, you know, the next day is not so important. You know, maybe try it on a night, maybe a Friday night, and you don't have any show to do the next day. Okay. All right. This is, I, I, I like the homework. This is good. This is a good start. And, and it sounds like there's a map. But, um, like, I, like we've discussed, I, I'm still, as of right now, even in a, in a decent night, four and a half hours. So there's a lot of work to do. Right. If there's any way you could increase your number of hours of sleep, it would certainly help with contributing towards uh, uh, probably feeling more refreshed and overall better for your health. That's hard to do, right? Because it's, you know, everyone's busy and particularly with your career, it's it's hard to, to pull off. But there may be some small ways to even increase by an hour or so, you know, sleeping a bit earlier, uh, starting a little later. I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but, you know, it's one of those things that you probably want to be aiming for at least seven, eight hours of sleep. Sure. Uh, I can't thank you enough for this. This this was oh. enlightening. Hopefully, in hearing you and I talk specifically about what's going on with me, hopefully that turned a light on for somebody else. But if we want to circle back around to one major point, is that if you're having sleep trouble, don't suffer in silence. Go get it looked at. Right. Absolutely. That that's such an important point. And really, the um, if your sleep isn't good, if you're waking up unrefreshing sleep, people are telling you that you're snoring. You're waking up with headaches. You're moving in your sleep. Anything that seems off to you, just get it checked out. See your family doctor, and he or she could refer you on to a specialist. And the medical the medical world is here to help you out. And there's a lot of I think there's a lot of diseases we can prevent down the line, like stroke, dementia, heart attacks, God forbid, all these really uh, unfortunate things. Even some emerging work is suggesting even cancer is linked up with poor sleep too. So. You know, get it checked out. You have nothing to lose, you know? And um, and really, I really do believe that as we as we increase awareness for sleep problems throughout all of society, we're going to really do a lot of good for many people. Mark, this was amazing. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Neil. Thank you. All right, there you go. Mark Boulos from Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center in Toronto, my sleep doctor. We are going to keep touching base with Mark periodically to give you, you know, extra updates along the way um, uh, on exactly what's going on with my battle. But now I've got marching orders. And going forward, we're going to have a lot more people to talk to. I mentioned before that the opening series of episodes for the Snooze Button podcast would be a little more science heavy. And so with that in mind, we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the wearables market and see what's out there that's actually dependable, if anything is dependable. Um, a 
Quick reminder to check out our website, thesnoozebutton.com, not only for the show notes, but also for a pile of helpful links. There's the contest page, which is consistently getting updated with new fun stuff that we're giving away. Uh, easy ways for you to leave a question for our panel of sleep experts. You can rate and review the podcast. You can leave us your feedback. There's links there to all our social media profiles. And if you so choose, you can even support the show with a donation to help keep it commercial free and help keep the doors open, if you will. Uh, Also remember, if you're crunched for time but you love the information, there are nine-minute versions of every episode with a different podcast that we call the Snooze Button Express. There's a link for that on the website as well. Until we get together next week, my name's Neil Headley. Thanks uh, for being here. And hey, get some sleep, would you? 